Welcome travelers to the New England woods of Rhode Island. And I'll begin with a content warning, as in this episode we will discuss cemeteries, graves, corpses, and particularly the corpses of children, so please be advised while listening. In the hills to the west rest many small cemeteries nested between the trees and valleys during the most gorgeous fall times. But as gruesome as it may sound, some of them have been dug through, and the dead not left to their eternal rest. But this wasn't done by grave robbers, or the famous European werewolves who would loot through graves, or realistically the actual moonlight cannibals. No, in New England throughout the 18th century, a phenomenon of a mass spiritual panic arose. A mass hysteria of sorts, as they believed the dead had risen. There were many tales throughout rural New England of dead relatives rising from their graves at night and haunting their kin. The infamous disease consumption had struck the region hard, Rhode Island particularly bad. With no scientific understanding of TB, this disease stunned early Americans. So in desperation, they found spiritual reasoning. And while not everyone called the undead vampires, the term became very popular. This brings us to the small town of Exeter, Rhode Island, where a mob of desperate folk demand to exhume the body of a deceased teenage girl. Suspecting her or her mother or sister to be causing the deadly consumption that struck the Brown family, by torchlight they convince the patriarch of the Brown family to allow the exhumation against his better will. And with a news reporter present, they cracked into three different graves in search of a vampire. But the dark ritual they performed in the name of God and health still leaves many folklorists stunned. So let's unfold the tragic tale of the last vampire, Lena Mercy Brown, on this week's Fringe History. What's happening, explorers of the strange? To the sanguine researchers and modern necromancers tuning in, you road trippers and ritualists, or really just anyone wanting to spice up their travels to Rhode Island with a trip to an American vampire's eternal resting place, this is Fringe History. I'm your host, Basti, finder of weird things and amateur traveling folklorist. And I've got a pretty bewildering tale of what humans can do while in search of rationalizing something they just can't understand yet. Growing up, vampires were pretty typical. I mean, like fangs, pale skin, no reflection, bites the neck, no sunlight, eh, for the most part. But many franchises have taken their own spin on this monster by now. You might even call an annoying person a psychic vampire, as they drain the life out of you with the endless conversation. But back in New England, this term was used almost hand in hand with undead at a point. During the 18th century panic, many saw vampires as the cause for disease. Since consumption caused deep nightmares and hallucinations, it seemed as though these monsters struck at night. But this tradition simply went too far, as they begun digging up the corpses of, oh, 
children, and loved ones, sometimes rearranging their bones, and in scary situations, they'd remove organs to make tonics for the living. I can't imagine the pain atheists and non-Christians felt as their neighbors demanded this be done, or be shunned by your community during your time of grief. So let's begin the tragic story of who some call the teenage psychic vampire, but her family called her Lena Mercy Brown. Let's start with the most accurate version of the story that I'd found with constant pictures of the original articles describing these events from the Providence Journal. Now this comes from the Rhode Island Historical Society and had a great article that began with, quote, Mercy Lena Brown was born in Esther, Rhode Island in 1872 to George Thomas Brown and Mary Elizabeth Arnold. Legends know her as Mercy Brown, but family and friends called her Lena. During this time, much of Rhode Island, including Esther, experienced very sparse populations as results from recent wars and men leaving out west for fortune. In 1820, the town had more than 2,500 in their population, which shrunk all the way down to less than 1,000 by 1890 and tuberculosis was slowly killing off the few inhabitants across New England beginning in the 1730s as the leading cause of death. They called it consumption, as it is a horrid disease drawn out over years with a hacking bloody cough and visible waste away of the body. A doctor from the 18th century described it as, quote, the emancipated figure strikes one with terror, the forehead covered with the drops of sweat, the cheeks painted with livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the breath offensive, quick and laborious, and the cough so insistent as to scarce allow the wretched sufferer time to tell his complaints. Symptoms progressed in such a way that it seemed like something was, quote, draining the life and blood out of somebody, end quote. In 1882, Lena's mother Mary caught this disease and died a year later. Later in that year, in spring, her 20-year-old sister Mary Olive struck ill. Quote, she complained of a fearful dream and crushing weight which drew the life out of her as she slept. She grew paler and more gaunt each night until June 6, 1884, when she joined her mother in eternal rest. End quote. Now, her obituary was notable in the Providence Journal, saying her funeral grew a large crowd as she was a worthy lady and she was a renowned clothing maker, and it noted her mother's similar death. A few years go by before her brother Edwin finally catches the same disease in 1889. Quote, Terrible dreams of suffocation and drowning stole his rest, and in the mornings he felt as though the very blood had been drained from his body. Doctors had no remedy for the mysterious plague that was turning Edwin from a hearty young man into a pale, shaking scarecrow. Friends advised him to travel to Colorado Springs, hoping the well-known spa would help him regain his health and vitality. Edwin took the advice and headed west with his bride, and it seemed to work, as the western climate seemed to arrest the progress of the disease." End quote. Now, Lena Mercy Brown was soon to become ill as well, over a decade after her mother came to her unfortunate demise. It was suspected she had a galloping version of tuberculosis, which had been asymptomatic for years, but when it came, it struck quickly, and she succumbed to her illness in 1892 with a rather short obituary, especially compared to her sister's. Now, Edwin heard of his sister's passing and returns home to New England to see his dad and remaining family. 
to which any improvement he saw quickly faded. Quote, during feverish dreams, he would cry out, she was here. She wanted me to come with her. She haunts me. Rumors quickly spread through the town and superstitions took over. Scared citizens of Exeter, fearing for their own health, begged George to dig up the woman's bodies and to figure out which one was to blame and rid Edwin of the evil spirit stealing his life. So he did, end quote. Here, I'll read directly from the journalist who attended the event back in 1892 for the Providence Journal, and the article was headlined, Exhumed the Bodies, Testing a Horrible Superstition in the Town of Exeter, Bodies of the Dead Taken from Their Grave. It begins with, They had all died of consumption, and the belief was that the live flesh and blood would be found that fed upon the bodies of the living. Now, the full article is, during the few weeks past, Mr. Brown has been besieged from all sides by a number of people who express implicit faith in the old theory that by some unexplained and unreasonable way, in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, to which is supposed to feed upon the living who are in feeble health. Mr. Brown, having no confidence in the old-time theory, and also getting no encouragement from the medical fraternity, did not yield to their importunities until Thursday afternoon, when an investigation was held under the direction of Harold Metolf, M.D. of Wickford. The bodies of the wife and two daughters were buried in the broader cemetery, were exhumed and an examination made, finding nothing but skeletons of the bodies of the wife and oldest daughter. After exhumation of the body of Miss Lena, who was buried nine weeks ago, Dr. McCaff reports the body in a state of natural decomposition with nothing exceptional existing. When the doctor removed the heart and liver from the body, a quality of blood dripped therefrom. But this, he said, was just what might be expected from a similar exhumation of almost any person after the same length of time of descent. The heart and liver were cremated by the attendants. Mr. Brown has the sympathy of the community, end quote. And that ends the journalist's article on the whew, rather dark ritual that he attended. Now, uh, sadly, the next few years only brings more tragedy to Mr. Brown as he watches three more of his children pass away from the ages of 18 to 25, leaving him and his daughter Hattie May only to survive. She goes on to have five children, though, and lives on to the late age of 79. Mr. Brown even gets to live into the 1920s, and where, at that point, science finally had a cure for the horrid disease consumption, as it was finally identified as tuberculosis in 1882, but treatment didn't reach those areas until the 1940s. And at that point, any superstitions, like the one that haunted his family, had finally been dispelled. This was definitely one of the most dramatic and late-stage examples of this phenomenon that struck New England, but much earlier cases of vampires, and more usually titled Undead Activity, had been reported in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and New York. But the Smithsonian has a whole article diving into the entire phenomenon, with a few folklorists and even archaeologists that I'd like to look at a few examples that they talk about. 
So the first one's going to be from Nick Balatoni, an archaeologist in Connecticut. And in 1990, he was called in to investigate a grave they suspected of a local serial killer named Michael Ross. But he found the graves were actually late 1700s children graves with notably no jewelry or burial rituals, all except the fourth one which was covered with large stones, and when uncovered, the coffin was painted red, and the bones were rearranged with the skull missing, and ribs crossed with bones through them, almost like a Jolly Roger. The bones seemed to speak to trauma, and the coffin had been notably smashed into. After asking many of his colleagues about any potential reason for this, he quickly found the story of the Jewett City Vampires because in the 1850s, the nearby town of Jewett exhumed many bodies from the graves that were expected to be haunting and preying on the living at night. He didn't see the full connection, until seeing this graveyard he inspected in Griswold, Connecticut, which was not far from the Rhode Island border, which the whole area had been deep into the vampire craze. He began to understand why the ribs were rearranged and smashed, as though they were seeking the heart to burn. And we'll look a little deeper into the facts of that later. A folklorist with the Rhode Island Historical Society named Michael Bell spoke with them as well, and he's an expert on the local vampire craze and has documented 80 exhumations from the mid-1700s to the late 1800s. Uh, notably, after the not-too-long-ago Salem witch trials of, of the 1690s, which the recent, okay, so the recent season of Fargo, uh, good one, had a beautiful quote that struck me about the witch trials, and it's just kind of uh, stuck with me since. Now, there's a corrupt right-wing sheriff, uh, John Hamm, uh, he accuses the FBI of a witch hunt, to which an officer responds, You know the witch hunt weren't witches hunting powerful men, but desperate men killing innocent women. That just kind of summed. People have misconstrued that phrase oh so much. And uh, yeah, no, the Salem Witch Trial is an absolutely tragic thing. I have attended the plaques of the supposed witches, and it's just a tragic scene for sure. Uh, but there are many examples of culling the undead and vampire hunts in New England that the Smithsonian notes. So let's look at a few, because in Vermont, they had very public ones, even festive hunts for the vampires. One vampire heart was reportedly torched on the Woodstock, Vermont, town green in 1830. I, I used to pass by Woodstock, Vermont all the time. Holy, I did not know they burned a heart publicly. Absolutely insane. In Manchester, hundreds of people flocked to the 1793 heart-burning ceremony at a blacksmith's forge. Quote, Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in sacrifice to the demon vampire who it was believed was still sucking the blood from the then living wife of Captain Burton. An early town historian says, quote, it was the month of February and good slaying. So they all had a great time while trying to get rid of this demon vampire. Um, uh, now, the Smithsonian ends their description of the New England vampire phenomenon and the story of vampire Lena Mercy Brown, saying, quote, The quilt pattern that Lena used, very rare in Rhode Island, is sometimes called the wandering foot, and it carried a superstition of its own. Anyone who slept under it, the legend said, would be lost to her family, doomed to wander, end quote. 
And while that ends the story of Lena Mercy Brown and her legend as the last vampire, the Smithsonian article had many other points about this phenomenon and the reality behind cases like our week's legend. So let's hop into the facts and see what the factors contribute to this panic and put to rest the quote unquote teenage psychic vampire rumors that have haunted Lena Mercy Brown for oh so long now. To start this section off, I'll finish some of the interesting notes that the Smithsonian article had to say about the location and timing of the New England vampire phenomenon, and just how something like this could happen to the corpse of Mercy Lena Brown. Folklorist Bell notes that places like Rhode Island might have a much easier time pulling off a more quiet exhumation of graves, as they had 260 cemeteries per 100 square miles in Rhode Island versus 20 cemeteries every 100 square miles in Vermont. Vermont towns also had cemeteries in the middle of their town, so it'd be kind of hard for them to hide this compared to the more rural, quiet cemeteries that were popular in New England. And like we talked about, Vermont was cool with doing very public, almost festive ones of these. But Rhode Island would keep their on the quiet. It's kind of amazing that Mercy Lena's Browns was publicized by a Providence Journal news reporter, but it seems like that just kind of was because of how late age it was. If we think of all of the 1800s, even to the late 1700s, how many of these cemeteries throughout Rhode Island were having these happen to them? I mean, in Connecticut, they didn't find the red grave with the Jolly Roger in it until 1990 when he had to exhume it. So there's no telling how many of these cemeteries still were affected by this very same phenomenon. Now, let's go over to the first known reference of an American vampire scare is a scolding letter to the editor of the Connecticut Courant and Weekly Intelligencer, published in June 1784. Councilman Moses Holmes from the town Wilmington warned people to beware of a certain quack doctor, a foreigner, who had urged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption. Holmes had witnessed several children exhumed at the doctor's request and wanted no more of it, and the bodies of the dead may rest quiet in their graves without such interruption. I think the public ought to be aware of being led away by such imposture." End quote. The current family of Lena Mercy Brown uh, in Esther still honors their family, and especially Mercy Lena Brown, as they still have a family treasure of hers a quilt that Lena sewed. They say, we spread it around the scarred wooden table. Quote, the cotton bedspread is pink, blue, and cream. What look from a distance like large patches of plain brown fabric are fields of tiny daisies. It's the work of a farm girl without any wasteful applique. Lena clearly ran out of material in some spaces and had to scrimp for more. Textile scholars at the University of Rhode Island had traced her snippets of florals, plaid, and paisleys to the 1870s and 1880s, when Lena was still a child. They wondered if she used her sister and mother's old dresses for the project. Perhaps her mother's death, too, explained Lena's quilting abilities, which are considerable for a teenager. 
Uh, I find it interesting that the Smithsonian and the Rhode Island Historical Society both attribute the symptoms of consumptions to the horrible conditions that fantasy has deemed for vampires throughout their time in our collective consciousness. You know, there's so many similarities from the pale and gaunt appearance, just not looking like themselves anymore, the sunken eyes, the cheeks painting crimson red, you know, wheezing so much they could hardly talk. I mean, I'm sure like the pox ridden bodies they had, like the blisters, the boils, the scars, a bloody cough. I mean, that all could have been attributed to much of the ghoul reports at the time. I mean, that's very ghoulish to me. And there's no doubt the disease consumption was absolutely horrid, and the people of the time needed peace of mind at any cost. And there were many wild superstitions at the time, not just this one about consumption. I mean, the Smithsonian article had mentioned a few, like, uh, quote, magical springs with healing powers, dead bodies that bled in the presence of their murderer, people buried their shoes by fireplaces to catch the devil if he tried to come down the chimney, they nailed horseshoes above doors to ward off evil, and carved daisy wheels, a kind of colonial hex sign, into door frames to ward off even more evil. I mean, that last one being almost notable for what they would do to keep the Snallygaster at bay in Maryland and Pennsylvania in those Quaker communities. Now, Mercy Lena Brown's story is said to have influenced two important vampire stories, and the Smithsonian noted, quote, One 1896 New York world clipping even found its way to the papers of a London stage manager and aspiring novelist named Bram Stoker, whose theater company was touring the U.S. that same year. His gothic masterpiece, Dracula, was published in 1897. Some scholars have said that isn't enough time for the news account to have influenced the Dracula manuscript, yet others see Lena in the character of Lucy, who her name is a very tempting allegamam of Lena and Mercy, if you think about it. So, she was a consumptive-seeming teenage girl turned vampire who is exhumed in one of the novel's most memorable scenes. I mean, there's just no denying how clear that seems, but fascinatingly, a medical doctor presides over Lucy's disinternment just as one oversaw Lena's. Whether or not Lucy's roots are in Rhode Island, Lena's historical exhumation referenced in H.P. Lovecraft, uh, you know, not giving any love to that racist piece of crap, but he did create some crazy stories out there, including The Shunned House, a story about a man being haunted by a dead relative that includes a living character named Mercy. He didn't even really come up with some of these ideas. He was nabbing stuff from everywhere, but yeah. Uh, many novelists have mentioned her story and have been influenced by her story in one way or another. Monster Quest featured a whole investigation into her story. I mean, that's, that, that is not a cosign or a recommendation for the Monster Quest episode. That's just, you know, a side note. Uh, even a band named a song after her in a recent 2022 album, Clutches Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, as her legacy lives on into today, whose purpose is a cautionary warning against believing in superstition so heavily that you could get carried away into straight-up insano territory. So, in conclusion, you know, Mercy Lena Brown was far from a teenage psychic vampire, and really just a poor sick girl whose body was desecrated to appease the superstitious neighbors. Her poor brother, meant to do something in modern day, would make many of us sick to the core. I mean, him having to drink the tonic made of his sister's organs, I mean, that's just 
outright we, yeah no we would never allow that today at least in america at least in most parts of america and it's just crazy that he still passed away from tuberculosis i mean i really hope that it showed those people that you should not be doing this don't take the heart out of a corpse that's a crazy person thing to do <laughs> Uh, but she can have the title as the last vampire in America, as it does help remind us of the horrid panic caused by a religious scare, one that shattered what we would call reason in the name of attempted comfort for the living. And that's to say there have been many religious scares in America that have caused people to do outright insano things one of the most obvious being the satanic panic where in bakersfield they accused a woman of having an underground dungeon labyrinth i mean absolute insane things uh, caused by religious zealotry trying to you know save the children while of course religious leaders are some of the most sus people around yeah it's a whole deal you know what i mean but i'm glad that lena mercy brown just doesn't have to have the horrid monstrous appearance that some people give her and people are quick to sensationalize her story when in all actuality it almost feels closer to true crime in the way that the exhumation is just such a horrid thing to do to such a freshly buried body too it's crazy she was nine weeks buried they found some blood in there thought she was probably the vampire then i mean it's absolutely insane but let's hop over to one of my favorite sections and travel to Rhode Island to see the beautiful hills in the woods for yourself. Maybe even get a taste of the Atlantic Ocean's mist in Rhode Island's awesome destinations. And namely, I'll guide you straight to Mercy Lena Brown's gravestone to pay your honors to this historical vampire legend as I once got the chance to. So if we're gonna travel to the spot, let's go to the spot. Let's go to the grave itself in Exeter, Rhode Island, less than 30 minutes away from the capital Providence. Only a few minutes off of the main highway four, it's marked on most of the Google Maps just to the left of Exeter proper. It's a very small town. You'll see the big country club property to the left and Mercy Lena Brown will be to the right. Keep an eye out for a large white Baptist church, Chestnut Hill Baptist Church right after Sunderland Road and right before Locust Valley Road. If you see that sign, you've gone too far. And there's no real indicator once you're there, but it will be a quiet, small graveyard, nice and peaceful, with this kind of wild hillside shack built into the hill with some sort of large wooden doors on the right side. You'll, you'll see that to the right, the church will be to the left, and a dirt path down the middle. And halfway down the dirt path, you'll want to keep an eye to the left, as she will be right off the main path. You'll see that some of them go kind of far. Hers is not far. It is right under a tree under the main path. And her grave was, you know, a little less notable than I would have imagined, but it is chained up to one of the nearby trees, so that's kind of a dead giveaway to which one it is. And please peacefully leave a tribute to her if you'd like, and above all, just be respectful, especially to everybody else in the cemetery. Just anytime you're visiting a cemetery or a peaceful place like this, that is baseline expected. I took a couple nearby, you know, pebbles and twigs and found a empty snail shell nearby. So I took a few trinkets for myself, but very small things from nature. The leaves will replace themselves. The twigs will come back. You know what I mean? But above all, make sure to leave something for her in her honor. 
Now let's look over to some of the Atlas Obscura plugs in the area and go to some other destinations as Exter is relatively small and while I recommend visiting the cemetery, it is a cemetery so don't stay there too long, don't be obnoxious and smoke there or try and have a picnic, I don't know, you could do it across the street, you could do it in one of the nearby parks, just uh, be aware of that. Keep your visit relatively short, you know what I mean? Just be respectful, that's all I'm asking if I'm leading you to these places. <laughs> but I will lead you to some awfully cool places where you can be super loud and do whatever you want. So let's go over to nearby Providence, less than a half hour away. Now, I have to recommend the first one. It's on the Atlas Obscura, and it is my favorite. Every time I go to Providence, I've gone there. It is America's first diner. An absolute must. It is called Haven Bros Diner. They got dope smash burgers. It's such a small space too. It's right off of the main road in front of the giant bus station. It's right by the Capitol building. I mean, yeah, look it up. It is an awesome eat. They have amazing milkshakes with like 50 different flavors. The people there are so hospitable. The first time I went, it was kind of a funny story. We were talking to the chef there. Um, I, I line cook in my past, so I was able to talk with him. He was just getting up. He had all these stories to tell, a very talkative Rhode Island man. I loved his accent. It was awesome. And he even offered me coffee milk, which I'd never had before. And he explained to me as a Rhode Island classic, it, you got to have a coffee milk and two dogs. That's how you start your morning. <laughs> was, what? <laughs> but it was actually pretty good. I mean, it was just milk with like some sort of coffee syrup inside of it, but the coffee syrup was made in Providence. So I don't know how local of a tradition this was. And you can't have just one dog. You got to have two dogs. Uh, so they sell dogs there. Get some coffee milk if you must. He, he gave it to me for free. Don't expect that. But it was also a full glass of milk while I had a milkshake. And yeah, I was pretty creamed up after that. I had to cool off. Uh, Haven Bros Diner, an absolute must, an awesome experience. There, It's one of those places that has like all the photos of the famous people on the wall, at least last time I was there. I saw they took a couple down last time I was there to go to a How Did This Get Made show. And yeah, you know, I don't know. Go check it out. Tell me how it is. Get one of those smash burgers for sure. Um, uh, other cool things in the area is an art display called the Time Wave Victorian Art Clock. A really cool sculpture to go check out. Nearby, there's a building that you might recognize and say, how do I know this? It is the building that inspired Superman's Daily Planet, or as we call it in reality, the Industrial National Banking Building. <laughs> now, Stephen Harris's Haunted House, or many of H.P. Lovecraft's locations, including his own house, are in the area. Um, I didn't go to the end. I went past one of the HP Lovecraft areas. I mean, he did influence some of the stuff I really like, and a lot of cryptid nerds love Lovecraftian stuff. Um, he himself is just, you know, a problematic writer, as you'll get from a lot of the 1800, 1900 uh, writers. Doesn't excuse the racism he used, but yeah, just be wary of that if you're getting into that kind of stuff. And uh, there's a cemetery in the middle of downtown that I would recommend going to. It's literally just kind of this random cemetery smack dab in the middle of all these buildings. It's just kind of a wild experience. And since we're talking about cemeteries, that might be your thing. Now, one thing I highly recommend to go visit, it's actually the reason I went to Providence for the first time, is the Gun Totem. It is a 3,500 pound obelisk built from the husks of over 1,000 reclaimed guns. 
So in 2001, there was a buyback program to get guns off the street in uh, Providence, and they turned this into an art installation. I found that amazing. I love it, and it is such a trippy work of art. I've been across America and seen a lot of cool art. Nothing like a gun obelisk. <laughs> now, uh, there is nearby Coltsville, which is a gun utopia. All the uh, Colt guns, the Colt 45, all that stuff. That was a giant factory in the area, and the factory decided to just make homes for all of its workers, and it essentially was just its own little gun utopia. Absolutely crazy. Nowadays, it is a more poverty-stricken area that surrounds the Coltsville factory, which as far as I know is being turned into a sort of national historic park. It's a cool area to go check out, and it has some neat art in the area, especially like that blue Russian uh, giant structure on top of the building. You gotta go check it out. Uh, there is also Nori the Dragon. If you like giant animal and monster depictions, as I always do, I always try to find the weird giant animals, and uh, Nori the Dragon is hanging off the side of the Children's Museum. A cool little site. I mentioned the Capitol building before, and they actually have a gorgeous one with nearby parks and a mega mall nearby, if that's your thing, right by Haven Bros Diner. And one thing that I did not get to see, but I would have absolutely loved to check out, was the Roger Williams root. Now this is Rhode Island's founder who was buried in a humble grave, but when a local community leader named Zachariah Allen wanted to bring him to a more fitting graveyard, he found that an apple tree's root had actually completely filled the grave and absorbed the nutrients from the Rhode Island founder's deceased body. He said that the root tapped into the body and took its form, growing along his bones, and the root now vaguely represented a human body. <laughs> uh, he was unable to move the body from the root, so Zach settled with rehoming the root as a whole, and it is now in Providence where you could visit it today. That's just... <laughs> Bewildering. Absolutely. I've never seen anything like that in any of the states I've been to. And uh, especially for them to just have their founder encapsulated in an apple tree root. It's just one of a kind. An absolute awesome thing if you could go visit. It was sadly closed on the day I went. Uh, and nearby stuff to check out, you could go to the abandoned amusement park in Warwick. Warwick was actually even mentioned. That's where the doctor from uh, Mercy Lena Brown's story came from. Uh, now, it is an abandoned amusement park, but there is not much of it left. It was obviously largely taken down. So it's more of just a uh, beautiful park that you can walk around, see some of the remnants. There's some cool graffiti art there. And there's a pier. The whole area is like a walkway on the water. So you could go hang out near the Atlantic Ocean if you'd like. Now, if ocean walks are your thing, I definitely recommend Jamestown and Newport as they have a couple cool beaches for sure to go check out. Notably in Jamestown, there is the abandoned artillery fort right on the ocean called Fort Wetherill. And it is absolutely amazing. It's right next to the Moonrise Kingdom Beach, the beach where that was filmed. If you're a big uh, Wes Anderson fan, I'd recommend that. But the artillery fort has been essentially transformed. It's a state park, so you don't have to be worried about if you're allowed to enter, if you're not allowed to enter. I think it says after dark, you're not allowed in, but that's just kind of fair game with most of the parks. But it is literally an artillery fort that you could climb through. You could walk around, be obviously careful and cautious as you're doing so. 
but it is huge. There are many rooms, there are many tunnels that you could crawl through. It is just a fascinating place, and it has so much graffiti art all over it. Even as you walk up this kind of naturey trail to the right, there's just these bunkers that you could walk into. They have all sorts of art inside of them, and it just creates beautiful views of the Atlantic Ocean from that fort. I, I highly recommend, especially if you could spot like parties there. It seemed very obvious that parties happen there pretty frequently. Even as we are leaving, there is a pack of like skater kids going there to hang out. So a very interesting spot. I would recommend it. A check out. And uh, in between Jamestown and Newport, Jamestown obviously being the uh, historic first settlement in America, really, or at least one of the first. So that's just one of the big reasons I went to Jamestown. But to have such a cool fort there and even have a history of cannibalism in Jamestown. I recommend looking into that. I've mentioned that in past cases. Uh, absolutely crazy. Uh, one interesting location, again, is the eco-friendly Clingstone Mansion right on the water. I don't know if you could access it. I wasn't able to, but you could definitely see it. It's a cool, eco-friendly giant mansion just on this small island. Uh, now, Newsport includes the first newspaper printed in America in the Hunter House, or the oldest synagogue in America, and America's first gas street lamp. They have a lot of cool things. I would definitely recommend going checking out Newport, as it is just generally a very nice place. Or they even have a haunted location, if you're in the more supernatural stuff, where Gravely Point, which was where most of the pirates of the time were hung, and now spend their eternal afterlife here on Rhode Island, haunting the shores of Newport. <laughs> but just to remember that just off the highway in between Jamestown and Rhode Island's capital, Providence, perfect time to go visit the home of Mercy Lena Brown. The last vampire lies awaiting your visit. And when you visit Exeter, bring goodwill and small gifts to leave behind while visiting the quiet woods in Hillside Cemetery. And enjoy your travels in Rhode Island. That wraps up our first vampire on this podcast. While Mercy Lena Brown's story is tragic and one I wouldn't rush to sensationalize as a full teenage psychic vampire, as she was the furthest thing from a monster, she was a 19-year-old girl taken from this world by a horrible disease, and she was disturbed in her eternal rest by superstitious neighbors who desecrated her casket and corpse. Her story stands tall as she is the last vampire, being one of the final cases and hopefully last ever of desecrating the peace of our loved ones in the name of a superstitious god. It's an honor to be able to visit her resting place and show respect in 2024 to a legend that deserves love after what she endured in death. We can now tell the obvious truth and clear her name in our modern day and she deserves that. All of New England is an incredibly interesting place, with a whole score of supernatural legends and tales. Rhode Island has many more, including the Glaucouster Ghoul, who's a Bigfoot named Big Roadie, the Foster Witch, the Headless Skellington of Swampton, Monica Comics on Instagram, highly recommend checking out because she has incredible depictions for a few of these guys that I've mentioned. So who knows what I'll visit next? When tackling cryptid and supernatural culture, I try to avoid the big names, but I've now done a Bigfoot, lake monsters, a ghost, a UFO, now a vampire. 
I guess uh, the werewolf will have to come soon, but that's kind of why I love this culture. Even the popular names can hold some deep stories, sometimes hidden in local folklore. I know a few werewolf stories that have interested me, from swamp werewolves to werewolves in Utah. So who knows which one I'm going to hit. All I know is that Mercy Lena Brown stands as the opposite of what we would assume from most vampires, and her historical significance is cemented in time. Stick around and see what will have in store for us on the next Fringe History. Fringe History is research written and produced by me, Basti P. Fringe History is an independent podcast relying and welcome to any sightings, encounters, or funding to help expand our community. Submit any stories to fringehistorypod at gmail.com or on Instagram at fringehistorypod. Make sure to follow the social media for episode drops and daily content, like daily cryptids. I got MetaZoo cards on there, depictions of different spirits, aliens, and of course, Tons of cryptids on there. Uh, and all the pictures you want to see from the case you heard today and all the other cases, it could be a good spot to find your next episode. And if you want to help support this podcast for absolutely free, please go leave a review anywhere you heard this. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Thank you a ton. And as always, stay weird out there. Keep adventuring, folks.